Hey yo. 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 Survey time. Did all you people come to see WCW? Or did all you people come to see the Pretty close, but that's one more for the good guys. Just one quick survey. Are you here to see WCW? Or are you here to see the Survey says one more for the good guys. We got a little survey going on. So are all you people here in Lakeland to see WCW? Or are all you people here in Lakeland to see the... That's pretty close, but I'm gonna have to say one more for the good guy. It's survey time. Are you here to see WCW? Or is everybody in Cedar Rapids here to see the survey says one more for the good guys. We got a little survey going on. Is everybody here in Huntsville to see WCW? Or is everybody in Huntsville to see the survey says one more for the good guy. We just gotta know. Now did you come to see WCW? Or did everybody here come to see the We gotta know is everybody here to see WCW? Or is everybody here to see the end? That's what I thought. We're taking a little survey. Did all you people come to see WCW? Or did everybody here in Fort Wayne come to see the Weak, weak. One more for the good guys. We got a little survey going on. How many people here in Baltimore came to see WCW? How many people in here in Baltimore came to see the And it just wouldn't be thunder if we didn't take a little survey. Is there anybody in Fargo who came to see WCW? So that means everybody in Fargo came to see the Thunder 
in Fargo is just two. Service says one more for the good guy. Presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Get in the building. 
Me, I go wherever I want, whenever I want. Listen, we can, we can and where, oh, where is Scheme Gene? Because I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll lookalike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him for Billionaire Ted, for the Nacho Man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. What about the match? I don't know what to say. Randy Anderson's coming. Randy? Randy, what's going on here? What about the match, Randy? What, what, what's going? The match is, match, fans, we gotta go to a break. There's I, a match left! I have no idea what to say. Stay with us. Jeez. WCW, and the only way to do that is you gotta kick people's butts. You gotta make enemies. All right, all right, all right. Hey, looky here. You wanted Kindle, you got such a big mouth, and we, we are sick of it. What do you mean, who's we? You know who. Hey, this is where the big boys play. What a joke. I tell you what, you go tell billionaire Ted, you tell him get three of his very, very best. Maybe, uh, maybe the Nacho Man. Oh, no. And maybe, maybe he get the Stinger. Ooh, I so scared. You go get anybody you want, because we... What do you mean, we? We are taking over. You want to go to war? You want a war? You got one. Only, only let's do it right. In the ring, where it matters. Not on no microphones. Not in no newspapers or dirt sheets. Let's do it in the ring where it matters. If, uh, if billionaire Ted and his big boys, if they got any, uh, any guts, because we are coming down here. You're stepping over the line. And like it or not, not. we are taking over. You're out of here. You're out of here. I don't know what to say. We'll see you next week. 
Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz. Today is a very special tribute episode to the one and only Scott Hall. Joining me, of course, is the man behind the Ringer obituaries, the legendary Oliver Lee Bateman. Oliver, welcome back to the two-man power trip. How you doing? Hey, John. Happy to be back on. Sad to be talking about Scott Hall, but he's had a tough run over the past 20 no doubt about that. And I guess I shouldn't have said hello and welcome. I should have said, hey, yo, right? It should have started off hey, that yo. way. Hey, yo. Now, you wrote one hell of an obituary. Like, we were kind of talking about off air. 5,000 words. Great stuff. Love what you do with your obits. You always get some good tidbits and some good stories. So what was it like putting this together for Scotty Hall? Well, this one, John, I really wanted to focus on the murder uh, you know, the justifiable homicide that happened very, very early in, in Scott's life. Like he's like 21 or 22 uh, in Orlando at this, working at this bar, the bouncer bartender bar that's in the Motley Crew girls, girls, girls song, actually the original dollhouse. And I had watched the E60 ESPN documentary when it came out a decade ago. And that was all I ever sort of thought about it. Like I, I, I knew the story from that point on, and I thought he, he talked about it in a compelling way, but he doesn't really give you details. There aren't names named. I think they show a picture of the strip club. And I had seen elsewhere that that had sort of been mentioned, and sometimes they would, you know, it had been fact-checked in, like, you know, major newspapers and stuff when it appeared, but nobody really talked about the details, and I, I wanted to see what was going on. So I went and found the original Orlando Sentinel article, which – some other people had linked back to and it blew my mind. And I, I then went and got an earlier article from a month earlier. In fact, when the man who attacked Hall was a guy named Rodney Turner, who was a manager there at the original dollhouse who a month earlier had shot and killed somebody for making sort of flirtatious, uh, taking sort of a flirtatious uh, approach toward his 19 year old wife. He, He's 37. And I thought that was really the, that was really the thing to talk about here. Like I, it wasn't just that Hall, you could hear it in Hall's voice on the ESPN documentary. Like he was shook. He's still shaken up. But to be able to realize that Scott Hall was facing down a murderer who a month earlier had murdered someone else, made the newspaper for it and had it ruled a justifiable homicide. And in that case too, it was over this 19 year old wife. Wow. I mean, Scott Hall wasn't just, I mean, it wasn't just like a drunken brawl with a random, you know, like when these things happened, it was, he was going to probably be killed by someone who was more than who'd already shown they had no problem doing this. And, you know, you shoot and kill a guy as big as Scott Hall in 1983, because he was beefed up then. I mean, from like 83 to like 86, 87, he's giant. Um, like, like he looks like, you know, like, you know, he looks like Matt Cross between Hulk Hogan and Magnum PA. If you shoot him, you know, the Florida police in the 80s are going to be like, yeah, of course it's justifiable. Look at the size of this guy. I mean, you're going to have to take him out with a gun. So he is really in a, a dangerous situation. So it's not just that he tussled around with somebody and, and shot him. I mean, he, he probably, like, I mean, obviously since this guy was the manager, knew this guy had killed someone. And knew this was no joke. Like, you couldn't just, like, let him lay there on the ground or beat him up. Like, I mean, Paul's not here to tell us 
all the details, but like even on the E60, Hall's like, I took the gun and I shot him. You know, I had to. And this this is kind of the missing piece as to why. Like he wasn't just just fighting a random guy or just fighting a drunk guy. He was he was going to be killed by someone who had killed someone for something very similar the previous month. Is that crazy? That is nuts because, you know, you think you know a little bit of the story, but that makes it like, wow, like Hall was carrying that burden, but he almost shouldn't have been given, you know, given what happened with, yeah. the, with the guy the week before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, I, I'm sure it was, I mean, it probably makes it much more scary for Hall, but definitely, I, I mean, you know, maybe like just the act of killing somebody, you know, it can have emotional consequences for the, the rest of your life, no matter what, but. Just the circumstances, even more unfortunate, because that knowing that like that happened a month earlier, it was really kill or be killed. You know, he would have just killed him again. And who knows, he might have killed somebody else if that jealousy was so bad over that young wife. It could have kept happening. To me, it's like the guy was definitely going to do it if if Hall didn't kill him. Hall would be dead. So it's like he. I mean, you never know. Obviously, it's going to obviously carry with you forever. But to me, it's like, man, I wish he would have understood, like, man, you would be dead, you know, if if you didn't do that. Maybe he does carry that. Maybe that's shocking, too. Like, I'm alive. I should have been dead. This guy's dead. Holy shit. You know, like, maybe that's maybe that's there. Like, maybe that was there. But I mean, geez, a whiz. It was like, it was going to be life or death. It's like, if you've done, if you killed someone once before and like the previous thing, like two, he was fighting with the guy that Hall killed was fighting with two guys, pushed away from them, took a rifle and then shot one of them. And like that, that guy is, that is a serious guy right there. That is not, that is not somebody that's just, just playing around or trying to teach a lesson. Like he wasn't just going to teach Scott Hall a lesson. He's just going to kill him. And then he would have walked almost certainly. Like you kill a guy at 6'5", 290, you were in a fight with him. What else are you going to do? You know, like he's he's too dangerous. But what a crazy, I mean, so that story, like even when they would talk about Scott Hall's addictions or his problems later on, I mean, Kevin Nash was right to always say, well, Scott's not really an addict necessarily. He's He's like severely traumatized. Like, there's something really off about him. To me, it's just it's just like an insane story. But think about where he was at that point and, you know, where he would be years later, you know, on top of the business and being this huge star. It's kind of like, wow, he went from a terrible, terrible incident and then he became basically on top of the wrestling world. But he always carried that with him. It always seems like the demons carried it with him. And as he got more and more popular, the demons kind of got stronger and stronger. That's what it seemed like anyway. Yeah, I think he says somewhere like from the outhouse to the penthouse to the outhouse. Hmm. That's the story of his life. Makes sense. It's kind of funny. Like another thing I try to hunt down with these obituaries, too, is like any proof, you know, if the guy played a sport like New Jack played college football, that's really – and, you know, there's never been any, like, link to – he doesn't even provide that stuff really in his book other than mentioning that he kind of did. 
But, like, I was able to track down his statistics, clippings, information about him. Because you don't think of, like, New Jack is the most athletic guy. No. But it was all there. But, you know, Scott Hall, you'd think, well, this guy looks like an NFL tight end, and he moved really well in the ring. Surely he played sports. Well, no, he moved around from high school to high school. He moved all over the place. He never really – his dad was an alcoholic. He never really had a chance to do anything. Wrestling was his real introduction to athletics, other than lifting weights and taking steroids, like he says in that documentary. That was what got him started, lifting weights, taking steroids, and then getting mixed up with the Florida wrestling scene, just like Hulk Hogan and Paul Orndorff and those other folks. And I guess he was trained under Hiro Matsuda, right, uh, under that tree? Uh, yeah, initially, and then uh, I, I guess just kind of probably like stopping in and stopping out from what I could tell. like, And then, then it was Barry Windham really like taking notice of him and thinking he would be a great guy to push down there in Florida, a great opponent. And they, they tagged him with Dan Spivey, another guy who I always thought had a ton of talent. I mean, just a ton of, of talent through the late 80s into the 90s. Um, and they tagged together. But, I mean, I, I think they realized that early on, like if you look at Scott Hall early on, like and if people haven't, I know like some of the, uh, you know, the postings and stuff about him did. Like the Scott Hall that came out of Florida – and then went to wrestle in Minneapolis for Vern Gagne. Like he, uh, he looked incredible for that, even for that time. Like he was bigger than Magnum TA. He was almost as big as Hulk Hogan. He was such a freak of nature just because he being that big, but he was so damn athletic. Like you almost forgot that he's six, seven, 285 just because of how athletic he was just amazing when you kind of think about that when it's like almost mind-boggling it's like wait how can a guy that big move around that that easily and definitely having kurt hennig as tag team partner in the awa in minneapolis like hall says he learned how to bump from kurt hennig so i mean if you learn to bump from kurt hennig you learn from the absolute best in, in terms of flopping falling rolling over things and, and i I mean, Hall did a lot of that. That was, I think, what always impressed me. In fact, in the WBF, I thought at times he looked more vulnerable than he you would think, given how big he was. Like, sometimes I, as a kid, I wouldn't think of him as, like, a world champion material type guy because he, he did bump really well for people. He was willing to lose uh, to people, like, like his buddy Sean Waltman, uh, the kid. And it was that. But he really had good bumping skills. He, he could bump and fly up into the air. I mean, early on, you know, in the AWA, he's not doing the bulk of the work. Uh, Hennig is, but Hall became a really good, really good overall wrestler. I almost feel like underappreciated, undervalued as far as just being a, a great wrestler and a great worker. But the guys that knew, knew, like he was almost like that gatekeeper in the, in the WBF, like Pat Patterson kind of had him in that spot and Vince had him in that spot where it's like, you're going to let us know if this guy's a good worker or if he's not a good worker. Like, Hey, we're going to put you with Jeff Jarrett. What do you think? Oh, Jarrett's great. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's like that kind of guy. Um, they brought in Shane Douglas. Yeah, Obviously, him. him and Douglas didn't get along, and yeah. that's a different story for a different day. But like, he was the gatekeeper. Like, he's the one that lets them know who's good and who's not. Yeah, I mean, from like '91, like from his like second character in WCW, his his Diamond Stud character, to probably his first or second year on the return to WCW in like '90 by '97. From like '91 to '97, he's a really 
strong worker and fully, fully round, well, like really well rounded by that point. Like he's, he's come into his own and it is crazy that he was the WWF gatekeeper when a, he had the mic skills. He was huge when steroids were going out of the WWF, even like when the, the, you know, the Federation was getting smaller overall um, after that first steroid scandal. And he could, he could out, he could wrestle at that intercontinental title level. Definitely. And it's, just crazy to think that he never did win the world title there, right? I mean, if you really think about it, no. he's many multiple time, uh, four time IC champ, but never world champ. Pretty crazy. Yeah, and then I mean, in WCW, he gets the US belt once or twice, and the TV title once or twice. But by then, he wasn't. He should have been in that world title mix. Like Kevin Nash had his run. Like they all should have. He should have had his turn with the belt at the top. And I, I mean, I guess he didn't need a title because he was one of those guys where if you know, you know, but in the mid nineties, WWF, it's hard to think of who might've been better than him. I mean, I guess it would be for part of the time he was there, it'd be like Randy Savage, maybe Ted DiBiase. Um, for part of the time, it would be for all of the time, it would be Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Diesel was not as like Kevin Nash was not as good. Um, Owen Hart was there, and they had they had some good matches, and they I, I know they had a good match on on Raw at one point. Um, like there weren't many better workers in the WWF at the time that Razor Ramon was there that I can, and there weren't there probably weren't that many better talkers. I mean, Jerry Lawler was there and some other people were there. And Shawn Michaels was getting better. But overall, he, he seems like he was a title-level talent. He just wasn't. It's, and he, I wondered at times, like, is he not big enough for, for the world strap? Because he's huge. Hey, he's a monster. Yeah, it, it just it would... I don't know, just almost like mind-boggling, but then you start to realize, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff, like, he had his demons, and, you know, they would constantly yeah, kind of... Yeah, they knew. They knew about Everybody the addictions. Knew. Yeah, they all knew about his alcoholism, and, and they, they, they knew about the, the troubles, so it was almost like maybe they couldn't trust him as much as world champion, even though everyone thought Bob he should have been. Bob Backlund gets the strap. Bob Backlund is a lot more trustworthy than Scott Hall. Yeah, think about that, yeah. 40-something Bob Backlund. Isn't that crazy? He just looks like a guy that works out at the gym at this point. You know, great shape, for sure, for Backlund. But putting the strap on him versus, yeah, I mean, Hall, and I I, I guess it must have been, I don't, I mean, like, I wonder, his drinking habit must have been just bad throughout. But he looked physically good throughout his time in WBF. There was not much that he really looked bad at. He had a terrible match with Backlund at, at WrestleMania 9. Um, but then he, you know, then he had great matches with Bret Hart that same year. So I don't, in 93. So I don't, I don't know, but physically he always looked good till about 1998, 1999. He looked physically always very good. You know, even if he was drinking, even if he was drugging, he, he always looked, He's always in shape. 
the Bret Hart match at Royal Rumble 93 I love. That is a really good match. That's a really good match. I almost feel like it doesn't get enough love. I mean, they had two. They had a good King of the Ring match that year, too. Yes, and yes. They should have just matched yep. those guys up over and over. Yep. I mean, they kind of did. Like, you could just match. I just match up, like, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, Owen Hart, Bret Hart. You could have run pay-per-view after pay-per-view with just those three guys. Those four, like, the Hearts, Michaels, and Ramon. Just running them through. Jeff Jarrett could go, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, yep. their matches weren't bad, in my opinion. I know some people might have thought they were a little slow. Um, and if I recall correctly, like, uh, you know, the roadie gets involved during that era. Uh, I know people didn't like that gimmick. But Jeff Jarrett could go, too. I mean, those guys were all solid, solid workers. And it's funny, I like the the Shane Douglas matches. The, just the finishes are so bad, it ruins the the, the matches. Um, but uh, some of them I, whole, I do that like. That whole period of, of Dean Douglas, that is a really weird, that is a really weird, like, time. You know what I mean? Like, that is a really weird time in, in Shane Douglas's career. And he's another guy you felt like was always, like, inches away from some kind of big time. And briefly, sort of, he was, but... I mean, he's hard to work with in his own ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no doubt about it. And the thing with Hall, too, is, of course, the Shawn Michaels, the ladder matches, WrestleMania 10, yeah, Summer, Summer yeah, Slam yeah. 95. I mean, so he, I mean, when you want him to put on a classic, he's going to put on a classic. You want him to have a slow match where, you know, it's a lot of character driven and you're trying to get storylines over and you're trying to get the announcing over and everything else. He could do that, too. But if you want a barn burner, he could do that. He did some of the best in just watching his matches again as I was getting ready to write. And even afterwards, I kept watching him, like, all through. I had him on in the background at some point. Like, one thing he did that was really great was, like, wink. Like, nobody, like, winked at the crowd or, like, ran their hands through their hair quite like he did. Like, he, there was something about him. Like, he had it, whatever it was, in that sense. And he always said, which is so funny because it's so easy and it's so true, but you don't think about it. He would like flat out lie to the crowd when he was being a heel. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't lose last week or I won or whatever. And like, you, you think about it, you're like, you're, wait, you're, this guy's full of shit. Like, wait, what? You, and then, you know, then the announcers get on him and stuff, but it's just funny to think like, why, why don't more guys do that? Just flat that's out classic, lie. That's classic heel stuff. I mean, that's yeah. like Bobby yep. Dean and Jesse Ventura stuff. Yeah. Pretty good yep. at that. Yep. Uh, but uh, even in some ways, Hall was like, Hall was like more of a, like when he was a bad guy, he was a really bad guy. Like that was good that he was like a really cool bad guy. Always kind so of. That's an easy one in the heel moveset to just lie about the results or lie about whatever happened. Just, just, and, and deliver it with sincerity. Yeah. He had a, he always drew to me, even when he's a heel, I kind of like rooted for him because he was so damn cool, like you said, with the slicked hair, the toothpick, the way he walked, yep. that that certain walk that he did, obviously, with the arms out, almost like that airplane kind of walk, but like the <laughs> slow, that yeah, slow walk. Like, he would kind of have, hand, like when you have hands up over the head, kind of like running out. Like he did... You could see guys try to do things like that. Like, I know we were talking about Shane O'Mac before we started recording. Like, you could see Shane O'Mac do certain things come into the ring that are kind of reminiscent of that. But it's not the same. 
like the way Shane O'Mac shuffles his feet and stuff, like there's certain things that are memorable that way. But Hall was just so smooth, even just, just something as simple as coming to the ring. And there's so many guys in today's wrestling and, and WBA, W, whatever, like what they're, what they're doing just doesn't seem natural or it doesn't seem cool or it just doesn't come off right. But him, as soon as he walked out, he like owned the stage, he owned the room, he owned the crowd and would just walk so smoothly. And like, you, you know, you just think to yourself like, God damn, this guy is cool. Like I remember me and my friend, we, you know, we were like in high school at this point, but when they started with the NWO, we were like obsessed with them. So we're like, okay, I'm Hall. Like, no, you're, you're Hall or, you know, you're Nash. I'm Hall. Like we would argue over who gets to pretend to be Hall. <laughs> we're like in high school, like trying to be this guy. It was just like, it was just amazing to think like this guy is like, he's the man. Like, I love this guy. He's so damn cool. He's so much cooler than everybody else. If you could take what he does and if you could take what he does and pack it into the like training in NXT, like if you could take uh, somebody like Rick Steiner's son, like like Braun Breaker, you could take that and like give him that walk to the ring, you know, or give him those pieces that aren't just physical skills, or any of those guys. You could you could get years of work out of them. You know, that's the hardest part of the business, I think, to to have that all the like all the intangibles that aren't even necessarily in the interview. You can train somebody how to do an interview. But you can't train them how to, like, be – you can't train them how to, like, use their bodies in all these ways to get heat or attention or impress the fans. Like, that's another level of – even, like, like that first Hall of Fame induction speech he gave, like, he was he was pretty bad shape there even. But he made – you know, he could make every word count. Something about him. Like, he could make what he did count for the time he was doing it. He got hey yo over. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty remarkable to think about. It. Like hey yo, what the get, what the hell? <laughs> you could get by. He could get by with just that. You know, if you had two other people doing a promo with him, you could get by with him doing like two or three catchphrases and still being the most memorable thing. Yep. And when he goes from WWF to WCW. I just love it. I just die laughing. All these people online, they're like, oh, game changers. Oh, this guy's a game changer. Ooh, you know, ooh, they signed Swerve. Ooh, ooh, they got Keith Lee. Ooh, they got Adam Cole. Ooh, yeah, game yeah. changer. You know, like, oh, God, Keith Lee, is so, Keith Lee is so fat right now. It is amazing. <laughs> I like Keith Lee, and I've watched him live several times, and he has gotten heavier every time I've seen him, and his routine has gotten slower. But, yeah, he's not a game – like, this was the only – like, this was the first true game – like, the way Bishop booked that and the way – Paul played that. That was a true game changer. It changed the business. Literally, yeah. Like he is an Everybody actual has been to game changer. That. Yep. Even WCW tried to recreate that with every other. It's Jim Neidhart, Ted. You know all of these guys. It's Vincent. Uh, you know, it's who, who's going to show up next, and that loses its appeal. But it, when it was just the two of them, you know, Hall and Hall first. Hall broke it in. Like when it was just the two of them, that, like that was the that's one of those things you can't really do twice, you know. And like the whole, it's kind of funny because AEW is doing a whole, like that's part of like creating that nostalgia effect of just endless game changers, and we sign them, and they're game changers, and who will show up, and what will we, like, like that was 
that was created in that moment with Hall and Nash, and it has never been. You can never like you can never truly do it again. You know, it'll just be like a Xerox copy of the thing. It'll never be that thing again. They did it, and that that's how it is with some angles. That's how it is with some things that happen. You know, but the wrestling business is so bent on nostalgia, so built on nostalgia that they'll just. You know, even even with the matches changing in the way that they're put on and perform sometimes, they're still working off like that same basic playbook of, of trying to evoke certain like five or six things, you know, whether it's like, uh, you know, horsemen break Dusty's leg or, you know, it's, it's one of these, these sorts of things over and over again, you know, Austin versus McMahon. They just work. But the Hall Nash thing is always anytime you just sign a bunch of people, it's that then invasion. I mean, WBF tried to work the invasion angle after buying WCW. Didn't didn't work. It was terrible. Yeah. And it's funny, like how many promotions, like you're saying, tried to copy Hall and Nash, you know, invading WCW, and none of it has really even close to come to the impact that they had. I mean, they literally changed wrestling. Wrestling was not dying out, but it was it was not in the greatest position in the world uh, when you know may 27th 1996 happens and he and he's he makes that great promo and he says you want a war you got it and then he punks out bischoff aka that ken doll look-alike i mean just that he's an actual game changer i mean that is actually changing the business giving hulk hogan confidence backstage that like he could be hollywood hogan and that this nwo thing is going to work i mean and hulk obviously was a big part of the magic of the NWO, but if you think about it, it's like, wow, who's given Hulk like the attitude? And Hulk said it the other day yeah. when he when he was talking um, about Hall. He said Scott Hall gave me my confidence back. Well, when you look at it too, like Hulk, Hulk was supposed to be a game changer. It's not like hiring WWF guys hadn't been tried before. WCW was doing that nonstop post Hogan in '94 or whenever. Like. Everybody Hogan wrestled, and we talked about it a little bit last time. They, like all the fat guys and big guys that he wrestled, <laughs> they started cycling through. Like he built an angle around that. It wasn't a. I mean, it, it kept the it kept things afloat, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a game changer. So the just the idea of like bringing people in that wasn't that wasn't going to by itself do anything. It was the way they were brought in. It was the coolness factor. It let it let Hogan feel free. To embrace that kind of, I mean, because Hogan could work heel. That Hogan's moveset, we talked about it before. Hogan's moveset doesn't really change. I mean, he might cheat a little bit more, but like he does heel moves uh, when he's wrestling, especially in the U.S. Like he does that back rake and that eye rake and stuff. Like, so he was he was ready to do it. He just needed, and I think I think Hogan really upped his game in the early years of the NWO. So I think Hogan upped his game during that period and doesn't get enough credit. But Hall and Nash in that first year were what carried it. You know, the Hogan, the Hogan swerve was another thing that everybody remembers and will remember, but the Hall Nash appearance. And I I think Hall's death, like Hall is known at the end of the day for that. That's what he's known for. He's known for that. He's known for punking out Eric Bischoff and saying that his big friend is coming. And that even like putting it that way, you can't you can't capture that because I know there have been some promos recently at the time we're talking where like hints are being dropped that Cody Rhodes is coming to the WWE, 
you know, and like you hear that, and they're not saying it, but it doesn't, even that doesn't have the same effect, you know what I mean? It doesn't move me in any, any way. Like, I, I had not thought about the business the way it would change after the Scott Hall appearance. Like, I had not thought about that. So that thing by itself makes him, even if his career had sort of ended a year later, that makes him incredibly important to the sport of wrestling historically. If you think about the NWO and kind of what they did for the business, without that, we're not going to get really the peak attitude era or, or the peak Monday Night no. Wars. You're not going to get Steve Austin. You're not going to get heel McMahon. I mean, you're not going to get all the stuff that, that, you know, the WWF piggybacked off of the NWO and, you know, took, took the audience away when the NWO started dying out and they started putting on great TV, but you're not getting that without the NWO. You're not getting that without Scott Hall. And it's a longer period than when you retell the story of the era. And even in my own mind, sometimes like before this went down, I have to realize like, I was pretty much glued to WCW from, well, really from like 93 on, but like I was glued and like, I was living with my cousins at the time. We were glued to watching WCW for almost three years from 96 to 99. Like we weren't changing the channel that much. And that part of the promotional wars and the attitude era are not the same thing, but in the historical retelling, the NWO, like, is a blip, and then there's Austin Rock, McMahon. But that's really, a, a, you know, that really cuts out what most people, like, most people were, the, the peak viewership was really, like, as the two promotions were sort of meeting in the middle, but, like, the peak viewership was really driven by what the NWO was doing. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what got the excitement up, and the excitement wasn't for, like, the NWO had an attitude, I guess, but they weren't, because of the way the content restrictions worked on Turner, they weren't, they weren't going where the attitude area of the WWF would take them. They were getting by with, you know, charisma and simple beatdowns and stuff, and debuting guys. Like, they weren't able to do some of the stuff the WWF would later do in competition with them. To me, I feel like it is, which is so funny, like the way you said it, because it's like a blip on the radar, but it's like, how could people not realize, like, without the NWO, without all that, you're not getting The Rock and all these guys from the Attitude Era. Like, Hall literally set it off. He is a real game changer. No BS, like these guys say today. I mean, he legit changed the business forever. I mean, Vince McMahon had to sort of uncork, and himself, too, like, had to find ways to do his own better version of the Eric Bischoff character had to find guys Mm -hmm. who had that same heel charisma that Scott Hall had, but you would push them as a face or you would, they'd be like a tweener who got cheered, you know? And it's after two years of them working like that, that this stuff really, you know, really percolates in the WWF. It's not overnight. I mean, there's, there's good moments and there's good character work happening in the WWF, but, I mean, you have, and I like some of the, I would tune in for some of the storylines going on over there. Like, I liked when, like, Del Wilkes went up, uh, Patriot Del Wilkes went up against Bret Hart, and that was a storyline. I always thought Del Wilkes, who's dead, is a good worker. I wish he'd been important enough for me to write his uh, obituary, but I, I think Mike Mooneyham or whoever did it did a, did a good job. But, like, I would tune in for that, but that wasn't, 
and like the Bret Hart heel in Canada face in the U.S. That was cool, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't what was going like WCW had the whole thing sort of going and it's going in its favor and was doing the groundbreaking stuff. And that, that changed. I mean, the WWF locked into a few things as well. Uh, and they, they made the most of it, but it wasn't, I don't think it was like by any means preordained that they would turn it around or that, I mean, let's say Hall, let's say Hall is like cleaned up in 96, 97, 98. And Eric Bischoff knew in hiring him that he writes it in his autobiography. Like this guy had a limited shelf life because he had problems. Um, Like if Hall stays cleaned up, who knows what goes on? Because then you have another legitimate guy in that world title picture. To me, it's like, man, like as a fan, you constantly wanted him to be world champ or he should be at that level. I mean, I love Kevin Nash, and he should have been champ too, and and, and that no problem. But I always thought Hall was a little bit cooler or a little bit better. I just yeah. always, I always kind of gravitated, and, and my friends are the same way. Like we love Nash, we love Hall, like we love them together. The outside of their gods, but oh, we always gravitated to Hall. Like, there's like, oh, man, he should win the title. Or, like, even, like, when he wrestled Sting in 98, obviously, like, you knew Sting wasn't going to lose the title to him, but you were, like, rooting for him oh. to win the title. Oh, yeah, I always just rooted for the – I mean, I just don't lie. I always pulled for the – like, I wanted the NWO to just win everything. You know, I, I was I was hoping we would just move to the NWO, like, you know, NWO, like, sold-out sets. And uh, I liked some of that camera work. Just move to that. You know what I mean? Like, just move to that. Um, and and stay there. As a kid, I, I found that really – because it was the alternative. Like, you watch an old Roddy Piper or something, um, but not as, not as cool. Uh, so, yeah, that was always what I was – that was always what I was hoping for. I mean, I guess in a way Kevin Nash was sort of the – not that Scott Hall was a dumb guy by any means. He was clearly very smart, and you could tell from the way he, you know, he would deliver his lines or carry himself. But Kevin Nash was like the calculating point of the pair. Like he's the one that wanted the guaranteed money. He's the one that knew. He's the one that wanted the time off. He's kind of like Jesse Ventura in that way. Like he knew this was a business. Kevin Nash also still, you know, usually looks pretty good. I mean, he's. I know he's had his injuries, but he's. I mean, he's he's been able to squeeze out quite a career, and he looks in reasonably good shape compared to a lot of guys. I mean, I know his knees are all banged up and whatever, but uh, but by that same token, though, Nash was Nash being as calculating as he was, that wasn't as interesting as Hall's kind of just chaotic coolness, you know, or he, like like Hall was always riffing. Nash felt much more scripted. Like Nash felt like he was sometimes. Like, when they would come out, like, goofing together, it felt like Nash was playing off Hall. You know, it never felt like it was Nash who was sort of initiating. I mean, backstage, it was probably like Nash who was dragging Hall out of the locker room. But in terms of the performance, it always felt like like Nash was much more level-headed in terms of he knew what he wanted. He was a great politician backstage, but he was he was focused that way. Such great businessmen, Hall and Nash. Two of the smartest guys. They knew, you know, it's all about making money, and they already had friends, which is that that great <laughs> that great line. Like we can make money, make friends. Well, we already have friends. Let's make money. And man, did they make money? And man, did they 
changed the business when they, forever. When they did have friends, they put their friends over. It's just they didn't have. They made sure not to have too many friends. <laughs> right. You know, they would have put the same five guys over. That that's fine. And that's an interesting business model. I mean, that whole that whole moment too, like a couple of weeks before the the hall debut. You know, that whole moment of the click embracing, uh, or at least four of the click uh, embracing in the ring. I mean that, and it's hilarious because Triple H proved that he knew how to play the game too. He took one on. He took one for the team, and it probably helped him long term. Mm-hmm. For sure. And yeah, if, I don't know what situation he's in now, but he's done fine. Oh yeah, he's he's set. Uh, he's fine. He's set for life, no matter where, what what he's doing. Um, you know, his, his wife's gonna <laughs> take care of him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's funny. You still watch shows today, and thanks to Scott Hall, you still see NWO shirts in the audience, even if they're yeah. in, even if they're in Saudi Arabia. We've seen some NWO shirts, so it's pretty crazy to think that that's you know, the, the global brand of the NWO. And I was reading, they do over a million dollars a year for like, and maybe even more than that for the last couple of years in merch sales on NWO stuff. That's just insane. I do have an NWO shirt that I bought like 10 years ago or eight years ago from like that t-shirt shop homage that had the deal with the uh, WBF. So mm-hmm. I got it when I was in Columbus, Ohio and at their store. And that's another five or six bucks in the WBF pocket. And I, why would I have that? It's just because I had one back in the day and I wanted to have another one. You know, simple as that. And I, I, I would, that shirt holds up better design-wise. I mean, I know it's not like the, the absolute greatest. It holds up much better than like Austin 316 as a design. You oh, know, I think oh, it holds up better than Degeneration X with the, the word suck it on the back. You know, like NWO is very simple. But everybody knows what it is. And I think when the Bullet Club shirts started doing really well, it was because they were very similar. And it, they, they, they captured that fairly well. No doubt about it. I mean, with, like, the NWO and how many shirts they sold and how many bootleg shirts they sold is probably, you know, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's just uh, amazing to think, like, how that just caught on and, and caught fire and the popularity but I love too, and I know a lot of people do. Oh, it doesn't look like a wrestling shirt. I mean, I think that's what also yeah, it makes it cool too. It looks like a rock. It looks like a rock band or a metal T-shirt or mm-hmm. something from that era. You know, it looks like a concert T-shirt. And I still have my NWO stuff from from '96 when that catalog first came out. I was whoop, scooped it up, gave it to my parents. I'm like, I gotta order all this. You know all this NWO, all this NWO stuff. I have this awesome cut-off sleeve Hollywood Hogan ripped NWO shirt, oh, wow. which is like really rare. I was looking up; it's worth a couple hundred dollars. I'm not selling it, but it's worth you know a, a lot of money. But I have like the Outsider shirt. I have all the NWO shirts. I mean, I had man, I was obsessed. I have the hat. I, I never got the. I never when they started doing the colored the red shirts and whatnot. I never. That was sort of where I stopped with the merch. Never did the Wolfpack. I had I had some Wolfpack stuff, but it wasn't the same, especially when Hall and Nash weren't together. When you think of Wolfpack, it's Hall, Nash, and Six. That's the real Wolfpack. Yes. You know what I mean? Like not ugh, like that. And that annoyed me to no end. And 
it seemed like, like but, everybody was in the wolf pack at that point. Like Sting was wolf pack. Like they're all. Yeah. Which doesn't like, make sense. A bunch of yeah. random people like enemies of the NWO were in the wolf pack. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, I, I, I just didn't like it. I had bought some of the shirts, I guess, cause I'm a huge mark, but I, I just, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like some of it. I even had NWO racing shirts for uh, oh, Kyle, wow. Kyle Petty shirts. Uh, wow. And, NWO racing. Yeah, wow. so I mean, I was a pretty big NWO fan. I was uh, very, very into them. I mean, that was Bischoff thinking, right? Like Bischoff was big into that stuff, right? Pushing mm-hmm. that out, motorcycles, cars. Yep. Um, you know, the Sturgis thing. That was that was a big that was a big deal for them. Uh, I think I did have uh, I think I did have a Latino World Order shirt. Wow, nice. I'm pretty sure that I did. Um, I don't. I still have the Degeneration X Suck It shirt, and it's in like a, it's in a box down here in the basement, and it has holes under the armpits, so at most it could be a sleeveless shirt. Nice. Now, that... but it, I don't think they make it with Suck It on the back anymore. Like that, I think that has gone out of the WWF. Uh, but that's another thing. Like the NWO didn't need to to, to do Suck It or constant like like that sort of level of humor to get over. Like there was enough edge just from how the guys behaved. And I feel like if you're a true fan, I mean, you kind of like DX a little bit, but to me, NWO is so much better than DX. It's not even funny. Yeah. Like it, it's almost laughable when people are like, Ooh, what, which is better? I'm like, okay, this guy's not a real fan. I can cross him off the list here. You know what I mean? Like, come on. DX was such an NWO ripoff with the two guys that weren't, I mean, you could say Michaels is, is one of the best, blah, blah. But to me, he, I mean, they're like Hall and Nash wannabes. You know what I mean? They were they were pretending to act like Hall and Nash, but more juvenile. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when you take like a Superman type character, then you knock him off, you know, like the other whatever you make might have gone to have like a good comic book history or whatever and might have fans. But it's not the same thing. Like everybody doesn't know it's an imitation. I mean, maybe the exception there in the wrestling business is Hulk Hogan coming off the Billy Graham tree. But Hulk Hogan was kind of... uh I mean, a lot of other people came off that Billy Graham tree, and they didn't do quite the same uh, as Hogan did. Like, and Graham just wasn't wasn't viable long enough for that to, as mm-hmm. a like true healthy performer for that to matter. But in terms of Degeneration X, yeah, I will always see them as this is like we're clearly making some of. The, I mean, and some of the things in the WBF are clearly responses to what the WCW was doing. I mean, the Montreal Screwjob hands them a chance for McMahon to become a Bischoff-like figure. Yes. Not the other way around. Yep. I mean, granted, I think McMahon's a better actor than Bischoff is, but it's not. But he didn't do that role first. Nope. DX is a ripoff of the NWO. Vince is a heel character is a ripoff of Bischoff. <laughs> to, a certain, yeah. to a certain extent, Austin versus McMahon, because it's NWO was kind of yeah. wrestlers versus the system. Austin versus McMahon is wrestler versus the system. So, you know, in essence, yeah, like they a took a lot of their man, stuff. He's a one man. He's a one man version of Scott Hall on that day in 1996. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that day in May, like he is, that is, I think that's a really good like way to think about it. Like Austin is bottled up and he Austin had that because he had been screwed over in the business so much. He too could channel that. You know, he wanted to get his. He was a politician, um, and he was able to make that work. But it really is. I, I think that's a really good point. That is a bottled up, like it's like they took all the pieces of the NWO and just parceled it out. There's aspects of The Rock that are Scott Hall like. You know, 
except like it's with the rock it's like really obviously acted and overacted and he's great he's a great actor but there's there's elements of even like how the rock moves at a certain time and like his size especially at points when he wasn't as huge um there there are some scott hall similarities oh he he flat out admitted especially recently he said if anybody thought that i wrestled like scott hall or threw a punch like scott hall you're right, yeah, because I flat out, similar. like he said, he goes, you're right, because I flat out stole it from him. When I first came up, I had a terrible punch. His bumps are very similar. Yep, too. yep. He said that he had a bad punch, and then he was watching a lot of Scott Hall, and he's like, man, that guy throws the best right hand. He throws, like, the best punch. He copied that. <laughs> Not copied it, but, you know, yeah. you borrow it, and obviously uh, Hall had no problem with it, but he took a lot of stuff from Hall, and he admitted, like, he's like, I based a lot of my, my even some of his look, he based off the fall. So it just Yeah, the look is definitely no. Now look as we're talking about it and think I'm thinking about it here. I mean, just those guys too, and like like Hall was not a super young man by ninety six and Nash is not super young. Like that's they were already kind of approaching the hill and they would go over it. So all those younger wrestlers or like underexposed wrestlers in the WBF could could definitely start ripping off parts of their, their gimmicks or borrowing. You know, not ripping off. They, like, they took them to the next level in some cases. But and that's how the business works. But definitely, I mean, Scott Hall's a great example of a guy, kind of like Billy Graham, who did certain things really, really well, like broke ground in the business and was not successful enough that he was always going to be there. But everybody ripped him off. Like, everybody borrowed from him. Like, the number of people, like, there's no, like, Jesse Ventura, governor of Minnesota, without Billy Graham. There just isn't. Scotty Steiner. The Rock isn't a movie star, probably. Like when I when I think back to watching The Rock wrestle and thinking about his matches, even that match with Hogan, there's so many elements of like Hall type movements in it. There's probably no like Rock movie star without all the borrowings from Scott Hall. Big big time, and hey, you know he obviously he. He admits it. He gives Hall all the credit in the world. Yeah. Just, it's just crazy to think like this one guy who, you know, you almost say, oh, he wasn't a world champion, but he's probably the best guy to ever win the world title. You know, this guy made such an impact yeah, on the business, but, I'm sure. you know, who who was better than ever won a world title? You know what I mean? Maybe Piper? I'm sure, that's right. Uh, yeah, that would be, Piper would be one. Um, uh, Steamboat had the NWA strap. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it depends on how you call whatever Rick Rude had when he had, like, the international title or whatever that was. I think world title, because it's the same thing today. There's a universal title and there's a world title. You know what I mean? So it's the same thing. He's world champ. Yeah, I see people saying, like, it's not. I I thought that he was just from watching the WCW at that time, and I thought that was a good era, like, in their, their programming, by the way. I know they had some dumb stuff, but I thought their main events. And upper mid-card stuff was really good during, like, the Rude, Arn Anderson, Larry Zabisco, Sting, that whole era. Oh, my God. Really good. And, but, and Vader but coming I, I up and Rick all those Rude guys. Was it was a, awesome. Rick Rude was a world champ. And, like, he was on top of the company. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I guess you would cross him out, too. But it would just be Piper and Hall. And Piper, too, I think, even though he was around a lot, I think that he – who really – nobody really took from Piper anything. How could you? True. What would you take? You can't copy his promos because it would be too obvious. (laughs) 
Yeah, they're, I mean, the promos are crazy. Yeah, they're, they're essentially these, like, crazy, half-improvised, strange things. So you can't copy him. Hall, it is interesting. You could – because Hall himself is doing – Hall is, like, built – like, that's, that's another funny thing. Like, Hall's building an impression into his character. He was kind of doing something similar as the Diamond Stud movement-wise. And he's, like, building this into his character – and even when he goes to the WCW as just Scott Hall playing Scott Hall, he's still doing he's still doing all the like Scarface stuff. Yeah. Yep. But he's just Scott Hall at that point. Like I don't know that there's ever been somebody doing doing like a ba- a fake Cuban accent that's so bad it's good. Um, that just kept it when they went on like, you know, like. Just, just weird because I mean, some of the guys that like did Russian characters like Nikita Kolov, it's not like they did something afterwards and they kept that going. This was, this is just something else. Um, yeah, I mean, what a weird. But yeah, I, I would say probably the best, best t- tied with Piper. Maybe Greg Valentine is up there, but Greg, Greg had, you know, I don't know if Greg, Greg could have been probably an NWA champ if Ron Garvin was. Right, no doubt about it. Um, for sure. And he could really work a well-paced, very slow. I, I think those Greg Valentine matches, we and I were talking about this just before this, like you could go back and you see, it's like a bunch of two-star match ratings for Greg Valentine. I would bump all from Meltzer. I would bump all those up probably one or two. Some of these guys like worked a very slow pace during that era, but the matches were pretty good. Yeah. If you look, I know this is way off the, the beaten path here, but Valentine Garvin and WBF is awesome that was a pretty good feud like yeah it had a lot of twists and turns right because like garvin retires or something yep yep. and he's like a ref yep like that goes on and on and it's a very nwa style story and the matches are nuts i mean they stiff the (laughs) shit out of each other in the matches i know um there was this one message board way back in the day that they said the 1989 match in MSG between Garvin and Valentine was like either the first or in the top 10 of matches for the year. I was like, all right, so these guys finally understand. I like, I love that feud, but I was looking at the Meltzer ratings. I was like, no, wrong, wrong, wrong. Like what? Way off. Yeah. And I mean, you know, yeah. he has his specific style yes, that yeah, he likes yep. where like, you know, all Japan women's wrestling gets 19, five stars and WCW, which like I said, during the Rick Rude, uh, heyday and during the JTEC Ricky Steamboat heyday, I thought they had a number of matches that were five star material and more than the seven that they got. Uh, and again, and it's just one guy, it's just Dave. Uh, but like some of these slow paced but hard hitting matches, and, and I mean, Garvin and Garvin and Valentine are a great example. Like, there wouldn't be much in the way of like moves or work rate necessarily, but there'll be just stuff laid in and there'll be a lot of psychology over and over. Like, and then and if you like good shops, there'll be good shops in the match. Yeah. I mean, I can go on, on and on for, uh, for days about, about, you know, for about that, but just want to get back to hall because I worked with him a bunch of times, did some autograph signings and stuff. I actually, Oh wow. Wow. So he is cool as hell. I mean, literally, like, as oh. cool as the other side of the pillow. Nash is awesome, too. Waltman might be the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. Uh, Bischoff is cool as hell. So, like, working with these they guys. Charisma. They all had charisma on TV, so. Yeah. But working with Hall was just, I don't know, it's a little extra special. It was really cool because you're working with him stuff, but he is, like, 
uh, just a genius. He was like imparting knowledge oh. to you about stuff like getting the right hotel oh. rooms and like telling me that, like, you know, oh, oh. In, in Philly, you know, you got to do this, get like giving me all this information. So we were together for like a whole day because we had actually had a booking at a strip club later on in the night. So we were there oh. for an autograph signing. And then at night we did a strip club. And of course the appearance is from like 12 AM to two or two thirty, whatever it was. So, I mean, I'm dead dog tired. And, and you know, we're went out for sushi. He he paid, refused to let me pay. He's paying for gas. He's paying for Dunkin' Donuts. He's doing all this other stuff. He's, oh. like, he's like, here's another lesson of the road. He goes, since you're driving, he goes, I can't let you fall asleep. First of all, it's an endanger to me, but he goes, I can't let you, you know, endanger yourself, oh. fall asleep. So he's this great conversationalist. He's talking to me all night, keeping me up, keeping me awake, telling me all these stories. So, you know, I'm shooting stuff at him. I'm like, hey, um, he, by the way, completely sober the whole time. So if anybody's thinking we're going to a strip club getting drunk or whatever, no, he did a, an appearance. He refused to drink. What he had, years were those? So this is John? this is probably 2018. I want to say. Yeah, he's totally like over the the hump. I mean, post Jake the Snake resurrection doc and to, post DDP, he's turned that. He, he has health problems, right? But he's turned the he's turned the drug addiction stuff. He he fought. He like tried. You and I are talking about this before. Like when he came back to, to WBF in 2002, he was trying to make it. He was taking care of his kids, as you noted, and like trying to make an effort to stay clean, was taking uh, prescription medication that made it so that you uh, vomit or upchuck when you, when you drink alcohol, even though they had him at an angle uh, with Steve Austin where they doused him with alcohol. He was, he was making efforts periodically and then eventually for, for good to, to clean that part up. Crazy to think if Vince gives him a call and hey pal, you done being Mr. Mom? You you done with that, pal? Let's go. We want you back. And that could have set him off again back into the wrong path of all his demons and stuff and, and the road. Yeah, and you know, and that's such a Vince phrasing too, because as much as I mean the company did help him with rehab and everything else and they were, you know, pretty public about that. Um, but at the same time there is something about like the Vince McMahon approach, because, you know, he, he holds himself to the same standard of just like, you got to get back in the game, you know, put all this kid stuff aside. You got to get back in the game, get out there and 300 dates a year, you know, this type of thing. If you're not doing that, what are you even doing? The road is, I think it's writing yeah, that Kamala obituary and talking to Coco Beware about Kamala and just about the business. That was definitely the, the Vince mentality. You were either working there or you were just kind of out. Like you weren't, you know what I mean? Like you existed when you worked there. And he's so into the business that, but, but I mean, you done being Mr. Mob. <laughs> get get uh, back in there and start falling on your back. <laughs> let's, let's get back to it. We're going to, we're going to put you in a four or five month feud with Steve Austin. I mean, he's in a main event feud when he comes back in 2002. I, those matches can be pulled online. People have done overviews of that and his TNA running. They're both worth watching because you can see kind of where he was still able to go and where there was some decline, real decline setting in. Like he was able to go in that WrestleMania X eight match, uh, that same card when Hogan turned back uh, was was turned back into a good guy um, against the Rock, but like the Hall Austin match we were talking about, it features a great bump on the stunner from Hall. It's not the greatest match, but it features a a very high angle bump. Uh, Scott Hall takes uh, on one of the stunners when he 
he really goes up in the air for it. And he could, the rock takes that bump kind of the same way, but like it, you know, Hall, Hall really, Hall could always do a great fallaway slam too. I don't know that anybody would pull out the fallaway slam quite as often as Hall. And I love what he would call it. The SOS the sack of shit toss. <laughs> <laughs> He would always like wink at the crowd a lot of times before he he'd hold the guy up for a little while sometimes and then and he was also when he was on it in his prime, I that crucifix power bomb that razor's edge that he did he was very stable most of the time like he that is a hard move to pull off. He got guys up there like I mean anything overhead like that is not easy to do, especially as, you know, your shoulders go and you get older. Like, he, he made it look pretty easy. That was a nice-looking move. Loved it. Such a, and then, of course, the outsider's edge when he was a WCW man. Yeah, all the different things. It was, it was like the diamond drop at one point. Like, it just kept yep. changed depending yep. on what his character. But that move is great, no matter what it was. That's a great move, and... Like I said, that's a world, that's like a world champion type finisher, you know? That was one of the most unique finishers at the time I was watching the WBF. I can't think of too many finishers in the WBF new generation that were quite on par with that. There were moves they protected, but I don't know that there were many finishers that looked as visually cool. And nobody was like, kicking at it. Looking back either. on it, like, Looking back on it, like a finisher that I don't think is all that great in retrospect, the torture rack is not, unless you're putting the giant on your back, the torture rack is not the greatest finisher. Like the Lex Luger torture mm -hmm. rack is yep. not. The, but the, the crucifix powerbomb, the, the outsider's edge, the razor's edge, that is a, that is a tremendous finisher. And nobody's kicking out of it either, which is great. Was it totally protected? Trying to think if anybody, I can't remember because I know Bret Hart like squirmed out of it a few times and didn't get hit with it. So yeah, I'm trying to think yeah, if yeah, anybody actually the guy would that. come down or like they would they have, would always have a nice spot of somebody getting out of the out of the outsider's edge. Like he would, they, yeah, I guess I, I'm trying to think things that I I watch. No, mostly it was people getting out of it, or it would get reversed somehow. You know, like something would happen to reverse it. Um, With the Kevin Nash's finisher, you know, the, Kevin Nash is like Jackknife Powerbomb by comparison, not as great. Not as good as Hall's, no, definitely not. I also loved Hall's no. chokeslam, too. I always felt like he had a great chokeslam. He, 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 he does a really, like, and it's kind of a big, it's a big man move, and it reminds you how big he is. It just fit. I don't know, like, his moveset was just... Perfectly like great psychology, just everything he did made sense. Somewhere between, uh, somewhere between like a 240 pound worker and like a big man, like he has a moveset that kind of goes between the two. And him and Jerry and Lawler are probably the best punch, yeah. That's the future of the business, as like they're like as the big performers, like The Rock borrows a lot of that, like as the big muscular sort of performers are, are coming up, they're doing more like that. Cena does a lot of stuff. That's a little bit more athletic, you know, to for a, a heavier and more muscular guy. And I think Hall was starting to do that. I honestly believe we've talked about it before. I know people want to compare that to Hulk Hogan. I think Hulk Hogan could have done that stuff if needed, especially early in his career. 
because of like how he wrestles in Japan. Oh, no doubt. I always want to put Hulk Hogan over for that. Like I think he, I think he was more athletic than anybody gave him credit for. He could have been right there, um, and, and was right there. Like he was, he was that type of worker before that type of worker. We just didn't get to see it all the time. Totally, totally agree. Don't want to make it about Hogan because I can go on all day about no, about no, about how great you and I both yeah. trying to bring him back. He deserves. Uh, I know you know people are like, well, I don't like Hogan for this or that reason, but he deserves to come back. Scott Hall. I mean, Scott Hall. I didn't see as much pushback when he passed too. About sometimes you know they'll be they'll have grudges against these guys for their behaviors this way, like oh he held guys back or he did this or he did that. It seemed like by the time he passed, there was mostly good feeling about Scott Hall. Definitely. I felt the same way. I was like waiting for like these assholes to write something negative about the God, the God. Like you, you said, he's, he's great at like, and that sober point of his life, he's a great guy. Oh, absolutely. And he's so funny and, you know, very honest too. Like I was asking him like, Hey, when you used to like mess with like Goldberg or the guys, he said he was just trying to keep it light. It gave like the guys that took it too seriously. Like everybody needs to relax. Like, He's almost like, like, not like a Zen master, but like, guys, take it easy, relax, all right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, in Goldberg's all like, uh, you know, too intense. Like, the, the Dudley boys, that story about how he went up to them and said, hey, what's your finisher? Oh, the, the Dudley death drive. Like, can't wait to kick out of it. That's well, a, that's pretty funny. That's just an awesome story, but that's a rib that he did to a lot of guys. But apparently the Dudley boys like overreacted to it or like complained about it or whatever. But it was like James Storm said he did it to him when he was in TNA. He said he couldn't stop laughing because he's like, I love like that, that attitude. So different guys take it a different way. But I think he was all lighthearted and he's not really going to kick out of your finisher. He's just messing with you. He wanted to see what you're going to say and keeping it light. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think you're I don't think that Hall was a. I mean, I, I think that maybe he was out for himself. Uh, I think Nash helped watch his back a lot, but I don't think. From what I just, I wrote a, I wrote a piece, not an obituary, but a piece for the Ringer about Goldberg, and it was about just it wasn't critical of Goldberg. It was just like what an interesting way to book a guy. Like his booking depends entirely on his invincibility. You know what I mean? Like he's he's a guy that you have to book to be invincible until he loses. And it is, how many times can you do the gimmick? You know, how like how long can you keep? He's kind of like the ultimate nostalgia gimmick. You just keep rolling this out. And so a friend of mine knew the guy that wrote the Goldberg show, that sitcom. I never watched it. Sent him the Goldberg article and was like, "Oh, do you want to send this to uh, to Bill Goldberg?" Apparently, the Adam Goldberg or whoever that guy was wrote back and was like, "No, no, Bill's way too sensitive." Mm. And it's funny because Bill Goldberg, I worked with. I think it was his cousin when I was a professor at the University of Texas Arlington, Joyce Goldberg. Uh, Bill was her little cousin, like growing up in Illinois or whatever. You know, two Jewish families, like, uh, but didn't didn't have any rem- you know particular memories of him being any other than him being involved in sports. You know, his dad was a doctor uh, of some kind, but that uh, yeah, I mean, why why take Scott Hall seriously? You know. Yeah, he's it's, he's it's, just it's, messing. People are like the, the whole thing is the whole thing is booked anyway. It's the performance that matters. And the funny thing is, Hall puts over Goldberg, and I I think that the, the ladder match I like it. I think it's pretty good. Uh, but he puts him over, so it's not like Hall doesn't put guys over. He's got no problem. Actually, me and Kevin Sullivan were like a lot of people. Over. He put he put Sting over. He got the yep. you know 
thing. I think that was a one, two, three. Uh, I mean, yeah, he he puts tons of people over. Yeah, me and Sullivan were going through and like, because you know, like the, we were talking about, oh, the complaint was Hall Nash and put a lot, the last, put a lot of guys over, but they the did. Last great singles match of the of the of the Scott Hall career. That ladder match is probably the last ladder sangha match. Is probably the last great singles match he had. Yeah, and he had no problem putting Goldberg over. So, I mean, he might tease you in the back, but he knows what business is. He knows, like, the right thing to do. And, you know, Goldberg's needed to be built up after the, you know, the horrible finger poke of doom and that, that whole thing and, and the stun gun. They knew they had to build him back up. So he knew that he had a job to him. But I feel like Hall, I mean, he lost to uh, Flyer Piper and Kevin Green, no problem. Yeah. He lost to Hector Garza, even though he wasn't supposed to. He losing to Chris Jericho, even though he wasn't supposed to. I mean, he'll he'll put over guys if he feels it's necessary. He's got no problem. Yeah, yeah I mean, he put over. He did the most. He did the most famous job of all time when he lost. He made Raw relevant when he lost to Sean Waltman. Yep. Like he like that. That would be. I mean, there are many guys that would never have lost to a guy at that like the size that Waltman was at that time because he would later, you know, uh, at other times. Sean Waltman has been a little more muscular and fit, but at that time he was not, he was athletic, but he was not, he did not look like the kind of guy, like that was, that was at a time too, when you had to be protective of that. Absolutely. I mean, but yeah, I mean, Hall did the job for anybody. He did the job for Goldust. He did the job for, which is a fine job. I mean, Goldust is a great, great wrestler, great power slam. Like does the job for Dean Douglas. Yeah. Uh, yep. Again, I, I, I mean, you know, I would be hesitant to put if I were as concerned about the spot. Uh, I think you know, in terms of that too, like if you look at his career versus Kevin Nash's, he was certainly more willing to take the pinfall for the NWO. He takes the pinfall at WrestleMania X8. Like he, he takes the pinfalls throughout that whole run of the losses throughout that whole run. Most of the damage in watching that O2 run and all the matches that they would come out in, he's uh, he's the one getting beat on. He's taking a lot of bumps. I mean, I guess Waltman is when he comes in at some point too, but like he he takes the you know he takes the bumps. He's the one that Austin terrorizes. So, yeah, I don't think he – I mean, even if he mocked your fit, like he said – it is a funny line. Like, I'm going to enjoy kicking out of your finisher. He – the way he was, uh, it was clear that wasn't the case. Like, he like he, he and Kurt Hennig – I mean, Kurt Hennig, as a mentor, you know, clearly Kurt Hennig did not mind losing to people or making them look good. He knew it was all business. You know, and you know, you don't really lose to the guy. And then he would always say, like I said before, he would always say, "I'll just pretend I didn't lose anyway." <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a great part of that. That gift. yeah, great, a great bad guy uh, in general. Like, I don't think losses should make a heel. And from that perspective, too, like unless your whole thing is you're a monster, you know, like you're a monster heel, and you have to leave the territory when you lose. I don't think losses should damage a heel if they're like a if they're known for like cheating a little bit or this or that, like what just means that, you know, you didn't get to cheat or uh, you just lie about it anyway. Like that, it works fine. Like losses shouldn't, shouldn't compromise. Like it was the same, I guess, with Ric Flair. Like I never really cared if Ric Flair got pinned. Didn't mean anything. 
It always seemed like he was about to get pinned anyway. <laughs> That's why when he was a booker, he used to say when the guy had a problem losing, the player would say, I have a losing record. I never win. So, you know, if I'm jobbing, you could job. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, there's a lot of value in that. Yes, in, in a way, Scott Hall was kind of the workhorse of the NWO in that sense. Even though he was having his problems, he could go out and do what you needed him to do. Yep, he definitely was. But as we, we winded down here, we head towards the finish. He did write the great obit on, on Scott. Obviously, check it out on The Ringer. You always do a great job with the obit. But what do you think is like the, the legacy of Scott Hall? I think that the thing that people should take away, and I'm glad we got to cover all these other little details about different parts of his run because I, di- I didn't get to get them in there. But I, I think the big takeaway is that he was the first guy, along with Kevin Nash, but he was really the first guy who stepped through that, you know, that forbidden door or changed the game. He was the first guy who did that, and that was really the thing. And that became like, like that was the thing that he made that the thing that you report on. He made that uncertainty, the story he made that he took all the skills that he had from WBF and he made, he used that to kind of make wrestling meta in this really interesting way. And it's never, it's never been the same sense. It's everybody has tried to recreate it. There were more people trying to recreate. There are more attempts to recreate that invasion, that gimmick, that storyline, I think, than any other. I think that every there's every few years, even in the WBF, there's something that that resembles that that happens, but it will never be the same. Like he will only be, it will always be him that was first to do that. And I, I think that's why he got like, like he got two obituaries in the ringer this week. The David Shoemaker one about how he sort of was perceived by the fans is very good too. Like that's why he is. That's why he is not just like remembered, but internationally famous. He, to me, a wrestling god, and you know, just growing up with Hall as he came into the NWO, he's literally a god to me as a kid. Like this guy is the man. Like I want to be this guy. He's so cool. Like he's just you know, like an, an idol, an icon. But then watching him, watching his work, studying him, being able to work with him. Um, doing a couple signings with him, making that long trip with him, spending basically almost 24 hours together. It was just an awesome experience for me. And I just, RIP Scott Hall, what a, what a man, what a legend, what an icon, and what a true game changer he was uh, for sure. Where can everybody. All this after what happened to him, man. All this after that initial thing and anything crazy. Where can everybody read that awesome obit and where can everybody follow you on social media? Uh, everybody can follow me at Mustache Club US on Twitter. Uh, OliverBateman.com has all of my writing, including that article. Um, the Ringer has it up on their page, TheRinger.com, and uh, I've got it pinned on my uh, my Twitter feed as well. People should definitely check it out, even in those five thousand words in our hour talking here. There's a lot more about Hollister. People should also just dig into the YouTube archives, watch his interviews. Like you said, he's a great talker all through his career, watch his, watch his matches from the AWA up. I mean, he is an interesting – I haven't been this interested in an obituary or this interested in something that has happened uh, in, in a long time because he was so important. R.I.P. Scott Hall. Thank you, Oliver. 
And of course, on this episode, you can also enjoy an interview I did with Scott Hall from 2019. This was very good stuff oh, wow. from Scotty Hall. But uh, thank you, Oliver. And rest in peace, Mr. Scott Hall. WB Intercontinental Champion, of course, a WB Hall of Famer, a former seven-time WWE Tag Team Champion, as well as a WWE TV Champion and two-time U.S. Champion. He is, of course, one of the greatest of all time, the bad guy, Scott Hall, a.k.a. Razor Ramon. Scott, how is everything going? Welcome to the two-man power trip. Hey, yo. Thanks for having me, man. That was quite an introduction. I didn't know I had that many gimmicks in my career. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and easily one of the greatest of all time. But, of course, we're talking to you today because on Sunday, November 3rd, over in California at the Wrestling Guy Store, the world-famous Wrestling Guy Store, from 2 to 4 p.m., you will be signing autographs and taking pictures. And this is going to be a first-time event for the Wrestling Store Guy in Huntington Park, California, as the Outsiders, Hall and Nash, will make an appearance. What are your thoughts on heading out to California? Well, I always love going to Cali. I mean, I'm going to hang out with one of my best friends in the world. And, you know, get to, I mean, at this point in my career, you know, like I'm watching the WWE Network now, right now, and God bless this thing because little, well, I'll be at a signing and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye when that match happened. <laughs> And they go, no, no, I saw it on the network. And 
I mean, it's just, I love interacting with the fans. I love hanging out with my buddy. There's great restaurants in Cali. So anytime they ask me to come there, they don't have to ask twice. The greatest thing about you in particular, and obviously Kevin as well, is there is always such a long line, and you can kind of attribute that a little bit to the, the WB network, of course, with the younger fans. But am I right on that? You guys always are still so popular, and you always have, like, the longest line whenever I'm at these autograph signings. Well, I mean, don't jinx us, but yeah, bro, it's it's really <laughs> fla- it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. And, you know, I mean, to, and to me, like, me and Kevin enjoy interacting with the fans. I mean, if you wait in line for a couple hours to come and tell me how cool I am, I got time for you. You know what I mean? I'm I'm available. But I mean, right now too, you got to admit you're you know you're in the wrestling industry. Right now is a great time to be a wrestling fan or a wrestler or, or associated with wrestling in any way. I mean, there's wrestling on Monday nights, Tuesday nights, two companies on Wednesday nights. You know, like Friday night. You know, it's just crazy. Wrestling is red hot again worldwide, and I'm just enjoying it. And you mentioned that you're watching WWE Network and stuff. Do you still keep up with current wrestling as far as watching a lot of these shows that we were just talking about? Yeah, I'm watching the Crown Jewel thing now. I really was looking forward to seeing Brock and that Kane Velasquez. They opened the show. And then um, I want to see this Tyson Fury and, uh, you know, what he does with the the big guy. You know, it'll be, it's, I don't know, it's good stuff. You know, they always load these cards up right now. Right now, Cesaro is wrestling the, the Saudi Arabian kid, Samoa or something. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, the production value and the money that they're making these days. And, you know, I mean, AEW is blowing up. I mean, Impact Wrestling is going in a new direction. You know, ROH is still hanging in there. I don't know, man. It's uh, <laughs> I wish I was about 40 years younger. It's starting hmm. all over again. That's uh, very, very true. You would be dominating. So what do you think of what you saw so far as far as Crown Jewel? And obviously they loaded up the card with a ton of stars. And Lesnar really uh, beats Velasquez kind of quickly. But what have your thoughts been so far on kind of how they've handled the booking? I think everything is great. And I I love the way that, you know, I I study what goes on in all aspects of our industry, not just what happens in the ring, but I like to watch behind the scenes, everything. And just the way that the WWE has gone about educating the fans in Saudi Arabia. Like, at first, like, they notoriously came late to the show. Like, the show started and nobody was there yet because they're not conditioned to that. And they weren't really responding to the matches, you know, cheering and booing and stuff the way they do customarily in the U.S. But after this is about the third or fourth time over there now, the fans are already getting educated to how to enjoy the show to the maximum. You know, to cheer, to boo, you know, they're having fun with it. It's just great to see. I mean, to, later tonight, they're going to have the first ever women's match in Saudi Arabia. So you can say what you want. I know the WWE took a lot of heat for continuing to do business with Saudi after the, you know, the one reporter was killed and stuff. But, you know, in their defense, you can't change anything by staying away. So, you know, they don't agree with the guy being assassinated, but they can't change it by sitting in Stanford, Connecticut. So, you know, all they can do is come and show the American way, you know, up close and personal. I don't know. I think it's a good thing. And it is interesting that Lesnar starts off the card instead of kind of main eventing the card, too. Is that a little bit different, a little bit of a, a change? Well, I know no, they did that when, once before. 
No, when you're around the WWE, that's the way they started. It's going to be a long show. They want to start it off with a bang. Plus, got to remember, Kane ain't had many matches at all. I think he wrestled once in Mexico. Now he's, you know, wrestling Brock in this huge show. Put him on early and get it over with. It's better than sitting around in the back for hours worrying. Go out there and, and get it over with. You know, like, I don't know. Press, press Brock is probably already on a plane back to the U.S. by now. <laughs> he, he's definitely he's done he's out of there kind of a, a good way right sometimes when you're on the card early it's good to get in and get out well yeah you get the people when they're fresh i mean traditionally i mean back in the old nwa days when like flair was the champion they always stacked the card from the you know the the youngest guys the least you know they stacked the cards so like the semi-main event would go on second to last the main event would go on last wwe had a totally different approach they would put Hulk on fourth. The main event would go on fourth, then they go to intermission. And you get the people when they're easier. You know, they're not all burnt out. They haven't seen a million things yet. You get them when they're fresh. Then oftentimes they would, announce, they would shoot an angle in that main event match, and during intermission they would announce, hey, ticket's on sale for next time we come back. And you get the people really excited, and you send them to the merchandise stands and stuff. I just think the way Vince changed wrestling, he changed it in all aspects. You know, instead of sitting around waiting, and then the second to the best match goes on second to last, and then the very best match of the night goes on last. That's meanwhile you got to sit through six or seven matches that are kind of like, eh. You know, it drains the audience. It's not. It's not a good idea. But you don't know that until you've been exposed to the other option. You know, I just think. Uh, I don't know. I'm a mark for Vince. <laughs> you are one of the greatest minds, basically, ever in the history of the business. Everyone says that, especially anybody gets to talk to you for even a minute about the business. You know so much. How did you kind of develop such a knowledge? Because, you know, Bischoff says how smart you are. Uh, Shawn Michaels, Nash, Triple H, everyone always says how smart you are to the business. How did that kind of knowledge come to be? Um, I, I Thank you. Um, I don't know. I guess because I was always a big fan. And I always paid attention. I mean, even before I could work, you know, I had a clue. You know, I knew I was really green. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that. And I knew what I liked. And I, you know, I paid attention to what worked. I'll never forget one time Arn Anderson told me when I was first starting. He said, um, he said, listen, he said, kid, I don't know if you know how to yet, but you got to listen to the people. And you don't know that. You've got to learn that. You're around for a year or two before you ever even understand what hearing the people means. But he goes, all the things you do that get, a, that get a reaction, he goes, you keep those. He goes, all the things you do that they don't react to, he goes, you leave that out. He says, pretty soon everything you do gets a reaction. You know, I learned that from Kurt Hennig, too, is like, don't just do stuff because you can. I used to always get on Dallas about that. Dallas would just do moves just because he could. Like, he'd, he'd hit you with one move, pick you up, and give you another move instead of just milking the one move. And we used to butt heads about that. I used to tell him no wasted motion, no wasted energy. Like, that was always perfect thing. You know, just do as little as you can. You know, I don't know, man. I just have a different theory about it. And as far as DDP, just kind of thinking back, and you being such a great mind, they kind of attribute you for getting him over the fact that, you know, they really wanted to push him and he was starting to get over a little bit. But as soon as he 
gave you the diamond cutter, and as soon as he knocked Nash out of the ring, boom, uh, sky was the limit. He was over for the rest of his career. Yeah, we were trying to get – we tried to do that with him for weeks because, you know, the the NWO was just getting so red hot, and we didn't have anybody to work with. And Dallas was trying so hard to be a heel. I mean, he was chewing gum and smoking a cigar at the same time. (laughs) He had so many gimmicks. He had the hot girl with him. He had the, you know, self high five. You know, he was doing, he was doing so much. But if you know the guy, he's really like a natural baby face. Like me and Kev, we're kind of natural pricks. I mean, we're natural heels. Dallas is like a natural baby face. He's a nice guy in life. And uh, once that came out, you know, and, and one thing about it was because he and Bischoff had a personal relationship, we're buddies. Bishop was hesitant to push him because he didn't want it to look like, you know, well, I'm pushing my buddy. And I'm thinking, who better to push than your buddy? You know, but yeah. I don't know. It ended up working out. And Dallas just lives right down the street from me. So everything worked out in the end. Full circle. He, you, you know, helped him get over. And then, you know, he helps you with, with a lot, you know, your personal stuff and, and getting you back in shape and stuff. So it's kind of cool to come uh, full circle like that. Yeah, it's been great, man. It's been great. As far as NWO, you said, you know, they were so hot trying to get over, but the NWO in itself, you, especially Nash and obviously Hulk Hogan, and when he turns Hollywood and turns heel, changed the business forever. When you were kind of going through that and that was happening, did you guys know you were changing the business forever? Did you know how hot it was going to be? Well, it didn't take long because we were paying attention. You got to remember, we came from working for Vince. So we came from the shark tank to like the, this wading pool. You know, and so we were aware that it was working because guys in the locker room thought we still worked for Vince. I mean, other wrestlers thought we still worked for Vince. So we knew that was working. So we just ran with it. We said, yeah, you only get paid by one company? Oh, my God. so good and that was so great and it, it changed the business forever you guys were, were so great but you know as we, we head towards the wind down head towards the finish um we took a, a trip uh probably back in june or so we took a long ride and i had asked you about dusty roads and and you know your history with dusty you told me an unbelievably awesome story about your boots and how you know dusty played such a you know pivotal role in your career i just thought that was so cool and and so yeah. it was such an awesome story. Can you, would you mind just kind of just reliving that story with me about Dusty and the Boots? Well, I mean, when I first uh, started, you know, I hadn't had a match yet or anything. And, and now, you know, Dusty is, you know, in charge of, like, what my costume is going to be, what I'm going to wear. And he has me wearing these knee-high silver wrestling boots. And back then, man, boots are about 250 bucks a pop. And I don't have that kind of money. But Dusty pays for it and everything, and he never asked me about it. He never said a word about it, and, you know, time went by. I, I was in Charlotte then. I left Charlotte. I went to Kansas City, kind of floundered there, but then I went to the AWA in Minneapolis where I started to get a break, and, you know, they put me with Mr. Perfect. They put me with Kurt Hennig, and things were going great. Now I got a little bit of money, and we were doing a joint promotion show in Baltimore. The AWA and the NWA were both running Baltimore. So I got to see Dusty for the first time in a long time. And I got to pull him aside. He hugged me and kissed me on the cheek like, baby, I'm so proud of you. You know, you're doing so good. And I said, hey, Dream, like, I see you may not remember, but, you know, and I, I slapped that money in his hand. I said, I'm getting, 
I'm getting emotional thinking about it. I slapped that money and <laughs> my maids are here. I slapped that <laughs> money in his hand and um, it's just really cool moment, you know, like people who help you, it feels good to pay them back and help them. And <laughs> we better call it quits, bro. My <laughs> maids are here and I don't want to cut them off. All right. Awesome stuff. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. And of course, 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday the 3rd at the Wrestling Store. For the first time ever at Huntington Park, California. Please go to thewrestlingstore.com for all further information. Of course, one last time, that is the Wrestling Guy Store. Check it out. Check out the Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Thanks for having me. Come see me and Kev at the Wrestling Guy Store. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip where the power lies brother. Everybody knows who we are. Everybody knows what we do. When we come in, we take over. WCW, WWE, we take over. And now we're in Japan. And with Team Monster, we take over Japanese wrestling. Now. ハスルで日本のプロレスを守ってくれ。頼んだぞ。もう一方。ただより、ハスルフリー、ホチソ最終試合。メインハスルを行います。横浜アリーナ。1万2057人の観客の発表がありました。その観客が見守ります。本日のファイナルマッチ。先にコールを受けたのはなんとあの男たち。ザ・アウトサイダーズ。2m10cm、135kg、ケビン・ナッシュ。
タッグはもっと広がっていくと思いますよそうなりますね、えー、そのためにも勝ってもらいたいですね、はい、我らが応援の方頑張っていただきたいね、はい、青木優子さん、はい、どう見えますかこの二人すごく大きなもう遠くからでもすごい顔とかはっきりわかるぐらい緊張してる感じが全くないんですよ、ねはい、リラックスしてますおーおートップロープまた来ましたよ今さあ登場してきた The Outsiders さあスリック隊長がロープに登る一方のバッドガイスコットホールかなり大きくなりますねそして島田雄三三本もリングに上がっています。